Chapter Six, Part Two of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ben Wilford. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt. Chapter Six: Through the Highland Wilderness of Western Brazil. Part Two. In the evening, after supper or dinner. It is hard to tell by what title the exceedingly movable evening meal should be called. The members of the party sometimes told stories of incidents in their past lives. Most of them were men of varied experiences. Rondon and Lyra told of the hardship and suffering of the first trips through the wilderness across which we were going with such comfort. On this very plateau they had once lived for weeks on the fruits of the various fruit-bearing trees. Naturally, they became emaciated and feeble. In the forest of the Amazonian basin, they did better because they often shot birds and plundered the hives of the wild honeybees. In cutting the trail for the telegraph wire through the Jurian basin, they lost every single one of the hundred and sixty mules in which they had started. Those men paid dear who built the first foundations of empire. Fiala told of the long polar nights and of white bears that came around the snow huts of the explorers greedy to eat them and themselves destined to be eaten by them of all the party cherry's experiences had covered the widest range this was partly owing to the fact that the latter-day naturalist of the most vigorous type who goes into the untrodden wastes of the world must see and do many strange things and still more owing to the character of the man himself the things he had seen and done and undergone often enabled him to cast the light of his own past experience on unexpected subjects once we were talking about the proper weapons for cavalry and someone mentioned the theory that the lance is especially formidable because of the moral effect it produces on the enemy cherry nodded emphatically and a little cross-examination elicited the fact that he was speaking from lively personal recollection of his own feelings when charged by lancers it was while he was fighting with the Venezuelan insurgents in an unsuccessful uprising against the tyranny of Castro. He was on foot with five Venezuelans, all cool men and good shots. In an open plain they were charged by twenty of Castro's lancers, who galloped out from behind cover two or three hundred yards off. It was a war in which neither side gave quarter, and in which the wounded and the prisoners were butchered. Just as President Madera was butchered in Mexico. Cherry knew that it meant death for him and his companions if the charge came home, and the sight of the horsemen running in at full speed, with their long lances in rest and the blades glittering, left an indelible impression on his mind. But he and his companions shot deliberately and accurately. Ten of the lancers were killed, the nearest falling within fifty yards, and the others rode off in headlong haste. A cool man with a rifle if he has mastered his weapon, need fear no foe. At this camp the auto vans again joined us. They were to go direct to the first telegraph station at the Great Falls of Utility on the Rio Papagio. Of course they traveled faster than the mule train. Father Zom, attended by Sig, started for the falls in them. Cherry and Miller also went in them, because they had found that it was very difficult to collect birds and especially mammals, when we were moving every day, packing up early each morning and the mule train arriving late in the afternoon 
or not until nightfall. Moreover, there was much rain, which made it difficult to work except under the tents. Accordingly, the two naturalists desired to get to a place where they could spend several days and collect steadily, thereby doing more effective work. The rest of us continued with the meal train, as was necessary. It was always a picturesque sight when camp was broken, and again at nightfall when the laden mules came stringing in and their burdens were thrown down, while the tents were pitched and the fires lit. We breakfasted before leaving camp, the aluminum cups and plates being placed on ox hides, round which we sat on the ground or on camp stools. We fared well on rice, beans, and crackers with canned corned beef and salmon or any game that had been shot and coffee, tea, and manta. I then usually sat down somewhere to write, and when the mules were nearly ready, I popped my writing materials into my duffel bag, war sack, as we would have called it in the old days on the plains. I found that the mules usually arrived so late in the afternoon or evening that I could not depend upon being able to write at that time. Of course, if we made a very early start, I could not write at all. At night there were no mosquitoes. In the daytime, nasty sandflies and horseflies sometimes bothered us a little, but not much. Small stingless bees lit on us in numbers and crawled over the skin, making a slight tickling, but we did not mind them until they became very numerous. There was a good deal of rain, but not enough to cause any serious annoyance. Colonel Rondon and Lieutenant Lyra held many discussions as to whether the Rio de Divida flowed and where its mouth might be. Its provisional name, River of Doubt, was given it precisely because of this ignorance concerning it, an ignorance which it was one of the purposes of our trip to dispel. It might go into the Gai Parana, in which case its course might be very short. It might flow into the Madeira Lowdown, in which case its course could be very long, or, which was unlikely, it might flow into the Tapajos. There was another river of which Colonel Rondon had come across the headwaters, whose course was equally doubtful, although in his case there was rather more probability of it flowing into the Jurena, by which name the Topahos is known for its upper half. To this unknown river Colonel Rondon had given the name Ananas, because when he came across it he found a deserted Indian field with pineapples, which the hungry explorers ate greedily. Among the things the colonel and I hoped to accomplish on the trip was to do a little work in clearing up one or other of those doubtful geographical points, and thereby to push a little forward the knowledge of this region. Originally, as described in the first chapter, my trip was undertaken primarily in the interest of the American Museum of Natural History of New York to add to our knowledge of the birds and mammals of the far interior of the western Brazilian wilderness and the labels of our baggage and scientific equipment, printed by the museum, were entitled Colonel Roosevelt's South American Expedition to the American Museum of Natural History. But, as I have already mentioned, at Rio, the Brazilian government, though the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Dr. Lauro Mueller, suggested that I should combine the expedition with one by Colonel Rondon, which they contemplated making, and thereby make both expeditions of broader scientific interest. I accepted the proposal with much pleasure, and we found, when we joined Colonel Rondon and his associates, that their baggage and equipment had been labeled by the Brazilian government, Expedito Scientifica Roosevelt Rondon. 
This thenceforth became the proper and official title of the expedition. Cherry and Miller did the chief zoological work. The geological work was done by a Brazilian member of the expedition, Isibio Oliveira. The astronomical work necessary for obtaining the exact geographical location of the rivers and points of note was to be done by Lieutenant Lira, under the supervision of Colonel Rondon, and at the telegraph station this astronomical work would be checked by wire communication with one of the Colonel Rondon's assistants at Cayaba, Lieutenant Sitano, thereby securing a mentally accurate comparison of time. The sketch maps and surveying and cartographical work generally were to be made under the supervision of Colonel Rondon by Lira, with assistance from Fiala and Kermit. Captain Almacar handled the worst problem, transportation. The medical member was Dr. Cajazera. At night around the campfire, my Brazilian companions often spoke to the first explorers of this vast wilderness of western Brazil, men whose very names are now hardly known, but who did each his part in opening the country which will some day see such growth and development. Among the most noticeable of them was a Portuguese, Ricardo Franco, who spent forty years at the work, during the last quarter of the eighteenth and the opening years of the nineteenth century. He ascended for a long distance the Zaigu and the Tapajos, and went up the Madeira and the Guapare, crossing to the headwaters of the Paraguay and partially exploring there also. He worked among and with the Indians, much as Mungo Park worked with the natives of West Africa, having none of the aids and instruments and comforts with which even the hardiest of modern explorers are provided. He was one of the men who established the beginnings of the province of Mato Grosso. For many years, the sole method of communication between this remote interior province and civilization was by the long, difficult, and perilous route which led up the Amazon and Madeira, and its then capital, the town of Mato Grosso, the seat of the captain-general, with its palace, cathedral, and fortress, was accordingly placed far to the west, near the Guapore. When less circuitous lines of communication were established further eastward, the old capital was abandoned and the tropic wilderness surged over the lonely little town. The tomb of the old colonial explorer still stands in the ruined cathedral, where the forest has once more come to its own. But civilization is again advancing to reclaim the lost town and to revive the memory of the wilderness wanderer who helped to found it. Colonel Rondon has named a river after Franco. A range of mountains has also been named after him. The colonel, acting for the Brazilian government, has established a telegraph station in what was once the palace of the captain-general. Our northward trail led along the high ground a league or two to the east of the northward-flowing Rio Sacre. Each night we camped on one of the small tributary brooks that fed it. Fiala, Kermit, and I occupied one tent. In the daytime the PM flies Vicious little sand flies became bad enough to make us finally use gloves and head nets. There were many heavy rains which made the traveling hard for the mules. The soil was more often clay than sand, and it was slippery when wet. The weather was overcast, and there was usually no oppressive heat even at noon. At intervals along the trail we came on the starring skull and bleached skeleton of a mule or ox. Day after day we rode forward across endless flats of grass and of low open scrubbery forest, the trees standing far apart, and in most places being but little higher than the head of a horseman. Some of them carried blossoms, white, 
orange, yellow, pink, and there were many flowers, the most beautiful being the morning glories. Among the trees were bastard rubber trees and dwarf palmettos. If the latter grew more than a few feet high, their tops were torn and disheveled by the wind. There was very little bird or mammal life. There was few long vistas, for in most places it was not possible to see far among the gray, gnarled trunks of the wind-beaten little trees. Yet the desolate landscape had a certain charm of its own, although not a charm that would be felt by any man who does not take pleasure in mere space, in freedom and wilderness, and in plains standing empty to the sun, the wind and the rain, the country bore some resemblance to the country west of Redhoff on the White Nile, the home of the giant Elan. Only here there was no big game, no chance of seeing the towering form of the giraffe, the black bulk of elephant or buffalo, the herds of straw-colored hartebeest, or the ghostly shimmer of the sun glittering on the coasts of Rowan and Elan as they vanished silently in the gray sea of withered scrub. One feature in common with the African landscape was the abundance of anthills, some as high as a man. They were red in the clay country, gray where it was sandy, and the dirt houses were also in trees, while their raised tunnels traversed trees and grounds alike. At some of the camping places we had to be on our watch against the swarms of leaf-carrying ants. These are so called in the books, the Brazilian call them caragadores or porters, because they are always carrying bits of leaf and blades of grass to their underground homes. They are inveterate burden-bearers, and they industriously cut into pieces and carry off any garment they can get at. And we had to guard our shoes and clothes from them, just as we had often had to guard all of our belongings against the termites. These ants did not bite us, but we encountered huge black ants an inch and a quarter long, which were very vicious, and their bite was not only painful, but quite poisonous. Praying mantis were common, and one evening at supper, one had a comical encounter with a young dog, a jovial near puppy of Colonel Rondon's named Cartachew. He had christened the jolly cumpup from a character in one of Frank Stockton's stories, which I suppose are now remembered only by elderly people, and by them only if they are natives of the United States. Cartachew was lying with his head on the oxhide that served as table, waiting with poorly disassembled impatience for his share of the banquet. The mantis flew down on the oxhide and proceeded to crawl over it, taking little flights from one corner to another, and whenever it thought itself menaced it assumed an attitude of seeing devotion and real defiance. Soon it lit in front of Cartachew's nose. Cartachew cocked his big ears forward, stretched his neck, and cautiously sniffed at the new arrival, not with any hostile design, but merely to find out whether it would prove to be a playmate. The mantis promptly assumed an attitude of prayer. This struck Cartachew as both novel and interesting, and he thrust his sniffing black nose still nearer. The mantis dexterously thrust forward first one and then the other armed foreleg, touching the intrusive nose, which was instantly jerked back and again slowly and inquiringly brought forward. Then the mantis suddenly flew in Cartachew's face, whereupon Cartachew, with a smothered yelp of dismay, almost turned a back somersault, and the triumphant mantis flew back to the middle of the oxhide among the plates where it reared erect and defied the laughing and applauding company. On the morning of the twenty-ninth, 
we were rather late in starting because the rain had continued through the night into the morning drenching everything after nightfall there had been some mosquitoes and the pims were a pest during daylight where one bites it leaves a tiny black spot on the skin which lasts for several weeks in the slippery mud one of the black mules fell and injured itself so that it had to be abandoned soon after starting we came on the telegraph line which runs from cuyaba this was the first time we had seen it two parisis indians joined us leading a pack bullock they were dressed in hat shirt trousers and sandals precisely like the ordinary brazilian caboclos as the poor backwards peasants usually with little white blood in them are colloquially and half derisively styled caboclos being originally a guarani word meaning naked savage these two indians were in the employ of the telegraphic commission and had been patrolling the telegraph line the bullock carried their personal belongings and the tools with which they could repair a break the commission pays the ordinary engine worker sixty-six cents a day a very good worker gets a dollar and the chief a dollar sixty cents no man gets anything unless he works colonel rondon by just kindly and understanding treatment of these indians who previously had often been exploited and maltreated by rubber gatherers has made them the loyal friends of the government he has gathered them at the telegraph stations where they cultivate fields of mandioc, beans, potatoes, maize, and other vegetables, and where he is introducing them to stock raising, and the entire work of guarding and patrolling the line is theirs. After six hours' march we came to the crossing of the Rio Sacre at the beautiful waterfall, appropriately called the Salto Bello. This is the end of the automobile road. Here there is a small Parisis village. The men of the village work the ferry by which everything is taken across the deep and rapid river. The ferry boat is made of planking placed on three dugout canoes and runs on a trolley. Before crossing, we enjoyed a good swim in the swift, clear, cool water. The Indian village, where we camped, is placed on a jutting tongue of land round which the river sweeps just before it leaps from the overhanging precipice. The falls themselves are very lovely. Just above them is a wooded island but the river joins again before it races forward for the final plunge. There is a sheer drop of forty or fifty yards, with a breath two or three times as great, and the volume of water is large. On the left, or hither bank, a cliff extends for several hundred yards below the falls. Green vines have flung themselves down over its face, and they are met by other vines thrusting upward from the mass of vegetation at its foot, glistening in the perpetual mist from the cataract, and clothing even the rock surface in vivid green the river after throwing itself over the rock wall rushes off in long curves at the bottom of the thickly wooded ravine the white water churning among the black boulders there is a perpetual rainbow at the foot of the falls the masses of green water that are hurling themselves over the brink dissolve into shifting foaming columns of snowy lace on the edge of the cliff below the falls colonel rondon had placed benches giving a curious touch of rather conventional tourist civilization to this cataract far out in the lonely wilderness it is well worth visiting for its beauty it is also an extreme interest because of the promise it holds for the future lieutenant lyra informed me that they had calculated that this fall would furnish thirty-six thousand horsepower eight miles off we were to see another fall of much greater height and power 
There are many rivers in this region which would furnish almost unlimited motive force to populous manufacturing communities. The country round about is healthy. It is an upland region of good climate. We were visiting it in the rainy season, the season when the nights are far less cool than in the dry season, and yet we found it delightful. There is much fertile soil in the neighborhood of the streams, and the teeming lowlands of the Amazon and Paraguay could readily and with immense advantage to both sides be made tributary to an industrial civilization seated on these highlands. A telegraph line has been built to and across them. A railroad should follow. Such a line could be easily built, for there are no serious natural obstacles. In advance of its construction, a trolley line could be run from Cuyaba to the falls using the power furnished by the latter. Once this is done, the land will offer extraordinary opportunities to settlers of the right kind, to homemakers and to enterprising businessmen of foresight, coolness, and sagacity, who are willing to work with the settlers, the immigrants, the homemakers, for an advantage which shall be mutual. End of chapter 6, part 2